Hello. This is Matt Hale bringing you the Art Monthly talk show. Now, I'm just taking the vibe from the music there, which apparently is an adjusted Marla, my engineer Chris tells me, which is great to hear. Um... Hello, listeners. Um, welcome to the show. Um, this is the Art Mentally Talk Show on the Clear Spot, and we are here today, all four of us, including me, talking about texts from issue number 394 of Art Monthly. That's the March 2016 issue, which has a number of things in it, including three pieces which we're discussing tonight. Now, the first will be by Catherine Lloyd. It's a review um, of... Ivan Argoat, now I may say that wrong, but Catherine will correct me in a minute, and his show, his show? Oh, an idea of progress. Yes, but it is a his. Yes. Yes, yes. sorry, I'm terrible, yeah. I've gendered mistakes, not good at making those right. Thank you very much, Catherine. That was Catherine Lloyd, and then we're going to talk about uh, another review of Electric Superhighway, which is a show... Well, sorry, the full title, Electric Superhighway, 2016-1960 to 1966. So I've got those dates purposely the wrong way around. Reviewed by Linton Talbot. Hello, Linton. Hello. Thanks for coming on the show. Your first time. Good to hear you. Yeah. Um, and then following that, we will deal with a feature, which has been written by Jamie Sutcliffe. Hello, Jamie. Hello. And that's called Art and the, what I think is pronounced Thulacine. It could be said differently because it does start with the letter C and H prior to the th bit. <laughs> but we shan't argue about the pronunciation because it's the meaning that matters, really. But, so that's the order of, of, of things, and we may find connections between them, or we may not, depending on how things go. And uh, it doesn't matter if we do or don't. But I think there are certainly some. Um, just before we go any further, though, just to let you know very quickly that you can subscribe to this magazine we're discussing, which is called Art Monthly, and we have a website called artmonthly.co.uk, and you can subscribe for £36 direct debit. That's the cheapest way, and we would love it if you did, of course. But now, on with the show. OK, uh, Catherine, as I said, thank you very much for coming in again. And um, just to begin with, this is a show at Space's Venue, yeah. Space are artist studios yeah. company who've been around a long time and have had a number of galleries. I think one was called Air. This one is called Space. Mm -hmm. um, where is it? It's on Mare Street in Hackney. Which is London. For yes. those of you who are listening in America. <laughs> London. <laughs> um, this picture we used in the, in the magazine shows um, an outdoor shot, which I think is of the gallery. Is that right? Yeah, so he's created um, a banner which covers the entire facade of the gallery, so you can only see it from outside. And it's kind of the main element of the exhibition. Well, I think you better talk about what that is then. Okay, so um, the body of work was commissioned by Space. Um, his name's Ivan. Thank Ivan you. Ivan um, and he, do, you know, where's he, do you know, is he based in London himself? So do you he, know? It's quite, I think it's quite important for the show. He's, he's Colombian, but he's based in Paris. So he, he's come to London to make this body of work. And I think it could actually only be created by someone who doesn't live in the city. It's quite important that he's from a different city. Um, but the show that he's created called An Idea of Progress, is um, it constitutes a video, there's a couple of wall collages, and then there's this banner along the facade of the gallery. Which is which is looks enormous. I mean, it's covering up the whole length of the building, which yes. presumably is, is spaces building yeah. where they both have their offices behind yeah, the and the gallery building. in front of them, don't they, I think? Yeah, it's 24 metres long, Wow. the banner, yeah. 
so it covers the whole building. So it's basically like a big commercial proper banner. Yeah, so the he's come to London and, and the first thing that he's he's cited is this aggressive presence of billboards and construction sites around London. So and he he kind of references it after the Olympics in two thousand and twelve, but obviously it's something that has been in London, prevalent in London for a long time. Um and this banner kind of subverts the language or the visual language of these the imagery that is associated with construction sites and how they present a lifestyle which they associate with kind of luxury apartments or um, offices. So um, he's created, he terms it an architectural monster. Um, he's created this um, architectural fabrication and it's based on interviews with Hackney residents um, that he's carried out in his research. <coughs> there are no direct references to these interviews, like there's no transcripts or anything in the show, but you can see it in the the actual construction, this um, contrast between elements of history and... Um, you mean like historical building yeah, style, so, Yeah, the actual construction is rooted in a Georgian townhouse so there's this this town it kind of looks like York Hall around the corner um and out of that comes a it's almost like a looming periscope type structure and just to be clear for listeners this is a an image on this huge banner yes across the top of the banner it says an idea of progress and yeah. then sort of slightly going over the words idea there is this periscope thing going and going that goes down to it and it's a big it's an image of this somehow ideal building generated yeah. by all the ideas that he's got from residents yeah, so in the it, area. Yeah, so it is a... Sort of a utopian of, thing, do you think? Or, or dystopian, I guess. Dystopian, yeah. right. I think, well, I mean, that's kind of the the complexity of it, is yes. that for some people it is utopia and some people it is dystopia, this um, disparity within the area which he's been looking at. So you could, like, there's some people who obviously are aiming for sites of... Um, kind of events happening so there's there's communal spaces but then there's also the complete opposite there's parks there's tranquil spaces where there aren't any people there's a lot of cows for some reason i don't know why that there's just a so lot. some people are obviously wishing they yeah. were, were more rural yeah. in hackney yeah. than they are i think there's probably more cows than people actually <laughs> in in the banner um yeah so it, it's this kind of I guess it highlights the disparity within Hackney, which has specifically undergone a really large transformation in the past few years, which he's he's referencing. You actually say, I think at one point, it's a kind of constant change. It's a never-ending yeah. change, which I, which I personally would agree with. London is like that, isn't it? It is forever. Now, a building site in some yeah. place, every day when you travel around, you will come across some development occurring which yeah. never seems to finish or feels like that. Yeah, there's the video in in the show itself which kind of shows how many sites there are around the city and some of them look like scenes of devastation, but it is this idea that there's this perpetual advancement, like they're, they're always trying to change the city and he, he frames that really well. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's, it's really this paradox of urban development where Hackney has been embraced as a site so it's been embraced, its culture's been embraced, the kind of population's been embraced but in advancing it or in progressing it, it's displacing its own inhabitants so I mean we've had conversations on the show previously about you know the artist goes in to an area 
regenerates it by taking over studios and then they move out and then the developers move in mm-hmm. once the and to drive up that change that you're yeah. talking about is that the kind of area that he's dealing with as well yeah Gen- i mean it would be called it's been called it, gentrification yeah. hasn't it but i mean ge- that makes me think of georgian houses but it's not is it no i mean he does he does reference it as gentrification i think it was a conversation that everyone was having when he came into london and he said he didn't set out to make um a body of work about that but it was just the the thing that was most obvious to him looking around the area yeah, which, which sometimes an outsider coming in can yeah, see these yeah, things exactly. really more obviously than the, when we're we tend to get away with it you know carry on regardless kind of attitude yeah. don't we yeah i think it, it's it's this thing about his banner is so huge that you can't miss it but it kind of becomes invisible because yeah, that was interesting. That that does fit what what I just said about how we experience yeah. by not really noticing anymore. Yeah, yeah, to a degree. I mean, the actual imagery in the banner is ridiculous. Like um, the roads look like it's like a scale electrics track. They don't go anywhere at all. They don't really mean anything, but it looks feasible somehow because you see these kind of constructions. Um, everywhere around the city. Yeah, I mean, we have plans for things like green bridges across the Thames, yeah. don't we? And, yeah. and walkways at Wine Law. I mean, I've seen many plans for the side of the Thames, and they look a bit like that actually, yeah, without exactly. much change. They would be the same. Yeah. So he's kind of he's kept it so close to reality, but also in the realm of the absurd. So it it kind of becomes invisible, even though it's so vast and you can't miss it at the same time. Um, there was one phrase that was interesting was. When you say, I think when you go in the door, you write that it says "futures future." Yeah. What do you think he means by that then? Well, I think it's just there's so all these construction sites have um, the idea of this lifestyle attached to them, and they use these kind of ridiculous maxims like about the future. And he's saying it's interesting the simulation of a close future, and that they're presenting what the future will be like in a couple of years, and they use these these ridiculous phrases so i think he's just using one that so it's ironic sort of playing up that yeah style of language yeah and it's that i mean obviously it doesn't it doesn't mean anything at all because the future can't belong to the future that doesn't belong to anyone at all he's not really you know referencing who will be embracing that future who that future is for but it sounds feasible because it mirrors the language that yeah so we normally might say your future as in you know you buy this house for your future. Yeah. Now he's saying, actually, it's the future's future. Yeah. It's like, it doesn't yeah, belong I, to I get, I'm yet. getting the... It's sinking in. It's sinking in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's a video in the space. So you go... The facade is on the outside and you go through... And as I say, yeah, the, the phrase itself is right next to the door. So you're going through this advancement just by walking into the gallery. Um, and the video kind of sets up how many of these construction sites you find around London. He's He's gone around and he's filmed... It's it's all East London. Um, and he's used a rubber glove. You can see it in... There's a video of the making of, of the, the film itself. He uses a rubber glove to kind of slowly pan these um, billboards, which you find. So you can't really tell... You can't always tell what's real and what's not real. Oh, I see. So sometimes it might be an image of what's planned to be built... And yeah. another time it might be the actual building. Yeah. What's the, where's the rubber glove come in? So he uses it on the camera um, and he 
pulls the camera up really slowly using the rubber glove. I oh, but it's hanging. The camera's hanging. Yeah, on, is I that think what you it's mean? the yeah the elasticity in the glove. Oh means that it really slowly pans up and down. So okay, he frames... Well, that's a good cheap trick. I must remember yeah. that one. I've been doing a bit of filming myself <laughs> lately. What are those things? You sometimes see these people walking down the street with imag- massive contraptions on that make the yeah. camera move smoothly yeah, without... Bump- so it's a rubber glove. Yeah. It's a bit cheaper, isn't it? Blimey. Yeah. <laughs> Marigold, come on. Yeah, so it, it frames them in a way where he's skewing the perspective so you can't see how big they are, how yeah. small they are. And you also sometimes can't tell how real they are. Um, so he's mixing reality and, and fantasy yeah. quite directly. Yeah. I mean, some of them are so... The, the projected, the ideals of these houses, they're, they're render, architectural renderings, but they are so real that the only way when they're filmed you can tell that they're not um, actually real is, is through the reflection in the sheen on the advertisement. Um, there are some that aren't. There's one in Dalston which actually looks a bit cartoon-esque um, but it does look life-size but then you'll see someone's ankles kind of cut across it and okay, suddenly so you realise it's a sudden, sudden undermining of the yeah. power of the thing in a yeah. way as well that, that does actually connect a little bit with an artist who we will come to talk about I think probably when we discuss the uh, review by um, Linton which is um, Haroon Farrokhi's this computer I mean I, I don't think this artist we're talking about now has used computers to make these images they sound like no. they're they're real images of yeah. given images and real things mixed together but it does sound like and some of these buildings are so computer yeah, designed in their yeah. origin probably that mm. they you will get this won't you and then and then Harun he, so he uses computer gaming technology and then that's undermined is it, is it that there's a connection i made a connection i made it i haven't yeah. seen it before the program it's good this program i learned something and he does use that kind of imagery in his other work um right so yeah because i'm gonna say i don't know this artist's um other work i did i mean is it worth mentioning any particular other things he's done would you say are they are anything anything rela- something similar that you're um, saying well not well i guess he, he's got an underlying theme that he likes playing with um, history, the way history is presented through artefacts in cities, um, he mistrusts stability. So if he doesn't like the way, or he will try and play with the way history is is um, symbolised in a monument or a statue or something historical within a city. <coughs> so he, it's more about um, the way that that thing embodies one singular narrative and he will always try and undermine that and I think with this show it's the idea that London is a, is an entity is as a, a whole entity with no disparity which is symbolised in the ideals of these um, projections in, in the future projections of these luxury apartments and the lifestyle that you can achieve if you live there he undermines the idea that the myth of London as as a singular entity, right? So it, which it's, is which is which it, it should. I've been the only one asking any questions. Uh, I, I've not been trying to hog it. No one's been <laughs> leaping forward and saying, "Can I just ask this I, question?" With I, their I, fingers, which sometimes happens. There's I, one going I, up. There's one going up. There's Jamie, my, my fingers right there. Come in, Jamie. Um, yeah, I was just going to say it's remarkable how closely the hoarding on the front of space resembles some of the hoardings that are being produced by the South Bank Centre to announce. <laughs> Um, new developments um, surrounding the Royal Festival Hall, the Queen Elizabeth Hall, um, and the Hayward Gallery. 
And the font, I think, is exactly the same font. I don't know if he's if he's borrowed that. That's directly, a very large sole serif kind of Helvetica type yeah, font. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's it's just Modernist. kind of uh, you know it's amazing how these kind of edifice complexes. You know, the the idea at the moment that the South Bank Centre is expanding um, into this contentious public space you know the, yeah. this is a space that was gifted to the public in 1951 and um is now being kind of co-opted and potentially commercialized um but this process is being kind of paralleled with um a marketing agenda that seeks to announce you know through this visual language um an idea of inclusivity and the idea that this is this is you know gentrification for everyone whereas it isn't mm. it, it's sort of a concealing process yeah i think I mean, I don't know if it's a direct reference to the South, but I mean, it probably is there because he's been kind of, um, obviously, has come into London and is using that as his research, just walking around. He wouldn't have. To, it wouldn't be hard to find it, no, and it wouldn't I mean, be. There, and yeah, there will there be others way. very yeah. similar. I mean, it is, it is what goes on all the time, isn't it? Yeah, but it's as Jamie says, it's, uh, these things that appear in the city are for some people. Um, indications of progress but for others are indications of displacement or eviction um so these things mean two two kind of very different yeah they produce a totally different feeling yeah. in the view i mean i have to say i'm not a great lover of these things yeah. i mean i i we have talked about it, i won't go on about it again but m11 link road knocked through Leytonstone, had a house you know, and it's the kind of thing that basically, oh, lovely road we're planning for you all. Yeah. Won't it be great? And it actually divided the community completely in half and most people had to move out of the way. Yeah. You know, and, and it's 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 a very different thing to the people who then drive up it later, thinking, mm-hmm. oh, this is good. I can now get to Epping quicker. Yeah. Um, and also, I think Argot is really interested in the actual vocabulary, the way that they present what they're creating. So, obviously, there is this idea of displacement within what they're going to be doing, but they advertise it in a way that um, only appeals to certain people. Um, there's one development that he focuses on in the video, which is in um, Dalston, it's on Kingsland Road. And if you go on the the website, it, it, it's been termed as hipster flats. <laughs> so there's this rhetoric before, it, before it's even been kind of finished or anyone's living there, that they give it these attributes of it being... Yeah. A hipster, but which is something that can only really arise out of trends, or you know, it can only be attached to a person. So no old people out there, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's unless they've got unless they've got bad hips. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, on that terrible joke, because of time being an issue, and we've got three people in the studio. Can we move on to yeah, the Whitechapel? Sure. You've been that was really great. Thank you so much. But we're going to all join in to discuss things together. But we'll move over. To the Whitechapel show, Electronic Superhighway 2016 to 1966. Which I really like those mi- twisted dates. That's mm. good, that. Yeah. I don't know why, but it's sort of... That does actually, or is it, reflected in the way the show at the Whitechapel, currently running till 15th of May, is laid out? W- do you think that's right, Linton? Uh, yeah, it is. Um, it's, it's an intentional sort of reverse chronology that presents this history... Um, of I suppose um, it's it's quite an ambitious attempt to sort of map technological developments against um, how they've been used in art practice over a fifty-year period. Um, so an earnest intention behind the show yeah. of, of, of quite but quite a difficult thing to do. A very difficult thing to do, I suppose. And and it's interesting. I think the reverse chronology is. Um, uh, as a strategy, kind of, you know, quite a useful one, because it 
it offers a, a, a you know quite a comprehensive jumping off point when you arrive in the exhibition so you're presented with ostensibly a kind of a, a, a contemporary moment but then you know that that well maybe I can go into this later but you, that's where you start and of course and there is a, there is a, sorry to there is yeah. actually a beginning well, yeah, this is... In a way, is, I mean, there is an entrance, isn't there? I mean, yeah, they don't exactly is, direct you to go in, yeah. say, for instance, through, through Harun Faraki. No, well, that, that, that kind of... I suppose the architecture and the, the, the way in which the show's laid out, you, you might find yourself coming to Harun Faraki at the end. Um, but, I, you know, I'm kind of just listening to, to um, what we were talking about earlier just now. Um, I think the, the Harun Faraki thing's very interesting because, for me, that, that kind of almost closed the history loop if you like of the exhibition in that you, you know you start in this contemporary moment that is almost like an impossible thing to do because i think the, the you know the, the newest thing in the show was from 2000 i might be wrong but 2015 possibly so you know the idea that you you start on a kind of a moving journey at the very con, you know the very precise moment of now is sort of an impossibility right so but well, it's such a fast-moving technological yeah, exactly, world that we exactly. live in now. It's yeah, so very impossible, isn't it? Yeah, so I think you know, kind of in one way, that that kind of um, strategy is very useful, and you, you kind of go back in time. And I, I think in the review, I made the analogy to sort of looking into space, and you know, kind of looking through space to see back in time, which is you know, kind of you, you go on this sort of narrative journey physically, um, with the intention of perhaps finding an origin or a beginning, and and that is also let down a little you know that's also very hard to do in the same way that you know defining a, a essentially a fluid contemporary moment is impossible finding an origin to this sort of relationship is quite hard as well and i think the harun faraki piece served to close that thing so as you as you you walk out of the exhibition you're you're kind of neither at the start nor the beginning but you're kind of addressing some incredibly fluid contemporary ideas surrounding technology and, and art practice um and, and there's certainly resonances with with the the show, um, Ivan, um, I got, I got, I got, yeah. There's certainly resonance with Ivan Agot's um, work. It seems, although I haven't seen his show, but just reading your review and, and listening just now, yeah, yeah. Um, just in that first room, let's just try and describe it a bit. I mean, the first yeah. thing I remember seeing was someone's bottom. Yes, uh, Olaf Bruning. I mean, not um, literally. Yeah, it's it's sort of. It's it's, a, it's weird. I mean, these are kind of positioned through sort of extension of the uh, curatorial conceit as the most contemporary iterations of uh, technology and art, and it's it's kind of a garbled sort of syntax, text messaging, instant messaging conversation coming out of someone's bum. But it's an, it's basically it's, it's like a poster on the wall, isn't it? Yeah, really? it's, a it's a big, long, tall, it's thin a huge poster. Print. It's about fifteen feet high. It's a huge, yes. big, naked bum with lots of sort of yes. um, ridiculous. But it's it's you know, almost as I found it almost as dismissible or or as ignorable as the the poster on the front of the space building. In that in that it's yeah it's kind of familiar graphic style. Yeah, it doesn't really say anything much, and you yeah, just it's ubiquitous. You, isn't do you know it? what I mean? So, yes, yeah. because it's ubiquitous and taking from that. You don't really want yeah. to look at it much. Well, I mean, I think it's it's just quite a nice work, and, and and I can sort of see why it's positioned as this kind of uh, contemporary moment. It, it's it's kind of apolitical, I suppose, and it's it's sort of um, very much to do with the vernacular of the internet, the way the internet looks, and and kind of what you might come across. So, in that sense, there's an irreverence and a, and a sort of a playfulness to it, and it's it's right next to a piece by Katya Novitskova. Uh, which is this sort of rodent curled up in a, a hand, and it and it looks like it looks like the internet. Do you know? You know, in in no uncertain terms, it just sort of looks like the internet when you walk in. So, 
that's yeah, which is which is something they wanted to achieve. <laughs> yeah, yeah they could have just put the internet you know, on a computer all in well, front yeah, of you. But you know, this, it's this giant kind of um, disconcerting sort of you know, it's a bum, some instant messaging, and a and a you know, yeah, it's a sign. Sort of it's almost cat. like a sign, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's work. It's it's funny because there is this thing in there where curators use artists. To, to say something they yeah. want to say and they yeah. choose this work to say and, and in a way is it right for the work and well, yeah, the artists is, let yeah. it go yeah. and, I mean I, I don't know whether you think they have been a bit light handed with the work or... no no I, th- I mean I think I think actually as a, as a sort of um, as a device it's it's quite useful it's sort of uh, it, it says here we are in the internet yeah. this is the contemporary moment yeah. it's sort of like this um, but then of course it, it then in this first room that really describes um, this dialectical relationship between technology and art between 2000 and 2016 downstairs is jam-packed full of every kind of iteration of that relationship you could imagine. So it goes from artists that simply use the internet as a tool to artists that um, are kind of interrogating what the internet is and and how it works. And and, and then there are some very kind of concise strands within it that... um, you know, focus on artists that are, you know, using the infrastructure of the internet to really um, uh, kind of in, in, look at uh, who owns it and and kind of what kind of surveillance we're under when yeah, using there, it. Yeah, there was a piece, wasn't there, where this clear perspex block of um, yeah. of computer you can sort of see the workings of, and that's actually yeah. Tell me what that is. Well, that that's a piece called um, uh, what's it called again? It's called. I the, should be helping you out there, but the, I can't. <laughs> Infinity Cube. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, say that again. Uh, Infinity Cube. Thank you. Yeah, um, and it's by Trevor Paglin and uh, his collaborator Jacob Applebaum, and um, essentially what that is, it it. it, it kind of references a, a kind of a minimalist sculpture in a sense yeah i mean that's um, what i thought it was i mean i didn't even yeah. read the label very well so i hadn't got a clue what but it was at all but it's full of technology it's, it's essentially like a series of computers that operate as like a hot spot within the gallery right um it's an invitation for visitors to the gallery to kind of uh, uh, log on to that and and what it then does is actually kind of all the traffic that runs past it runs, runs through a tour network which essentially encrypts your data uh, everything you're doing online makes you invisible so by extension sort of um makes the viewer complicit in a kind of a protest or or, or a politics of sort of resistance to what the internet might or might not be able to yeah. do i have to, to say personally i i didn't think it was as overtly usable as i'd like as i you know, yeah. you know i think they've put a lot of effort into that thing and i thought well I, you know I almost wanted someone there to say, "Come on, then, come over here now and do, show, do this and do that." And I mean, they could they could have had a bit more hands-on yeah. sort of. I don't know. Possibly, yeah. I mean, I'm um, a bit, I'm I'm not the best with technology, but I'm not that bad. Well, I, mean, I, I think I mean, well, I think the ter- um, the Trevor Pagan piece is sort of situated in an area of that first encounter with the show that um, is looking sort of specifically at you know interrogating what the internet. You know, it's kind of next to a um, not kind of it is next to Zach Blass's piece, which. Um, kind of, he's set up a pseudo company, or it might even be like is an artist gay collective. Bomb? Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And and the the the, the, the collective or the company is called uh, Queer Technologies, I think. That's it. Uh, yeah. So, um, I mean, I thought this was interesting as well because it, this this is sort of rebranding and and rethinking or kind of subverting the the very sort of military militarized capitalist kind of heteronormative underpinnings of like technological architectures branding packaging software hardware um everything you encounter kind of is from that kind of capitalist military 
research area. But you just put of, the you word know. queer on it, and it all changes. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, but I think you know, kind of just it, it's it's sort of a, a a reversal of the the you know the vernacular of all this stuff, including the critical theory and the and the packaging and the the product of of technology that you can buy. And and it, he makes it very much look like product. Some of it's workable. The software I think is actually written code, and uh, a lot of the of the product is simply there to be flexible within different contexts you can put them in exhibitions like a shop or you can put them in the shops which is done i think he calls it a uh, shop dropping rather than shop lifting so these products <laughs> so actually he adds go into, products yeah, rather than steals yeah. them i love it um and and, and yeah and they, they kind of you know they, they address feminist issues uh, uh queer politics and those those things which you know you don't you don't see in in technological kind of did know. you like ryan katra Tricartin, Ryan B. Tricartin's yeah, video, yeah, which was a room with a sofa and you could actually sit down and watch something, yeah. you know, really quite well if you wanted to. It was pretty crazy, wasn't it? Yeah, I think he's brilliant. Um, but I'm not, I'd not seen this one before. I mean, it was lots of people having kind of firework yeah, I hadn't protests seen outside yeah. their house or something. Yeah, I, well, it's, yes, it's going it's crazy. Kind of, it's a long sort of. Um, a convoluted narrative sort of film. It's like a feature film, but um, how does that connect with that? Say, I know he does do stuff yeah. online, as it were. That's where he comes out of. But this is a video shown in a gallery, yeah. or, or as you say, like a narrative. So well, I, I wasn't quite sure how they thought that that particular piece fitted well, this, in I mean, with the internet. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing about the exhibition as a whole, particularly downstairs. This two thousand two thousand sixteen. There are so many different strands to kind of what um, is being suggested or offered in terms of like a, an interpretation of what the internet means or what technology means but uh, for someone like you know Ryan Tricarton to me whenever I've seen his films it just it feels like you're being completely sort of suffocated and swamped and immersed and drowning in in the internet somehow yes. you know it's a, it hasn't got anything innately to do with the internet technologies but it just looks feels smells no, I agree like the internet because of the 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 dialogue the the the, the visual kind of you know the vernacular Well it's like they got dressed up for the internet, yeah, yeah, and, and it's, it's putting it on for the internet, from the internet, for the internet, about the internet, in the internet. It, it's just, um, it, yeah. it's, yeah, it's completely overloading and, and nip know, upstairs, nip upstairs in this gallery. <laughs> oh yeah, um, what what happens up there? Okay, so the, uh, this is where I think you know, um, again, kind of, it's, it's hard to talk about because it's in a reverse chronology. But if you look at the, you know, going up from two thousand back to I don't know the early nineties, I suppose you've got this. Um, this area which is done in collaboration or selected in collaboration with Rhizome which is part of the new museum and and it's a, a kind of an online collection of of uh works that might you might term born digital or or kind of that people might know as, as sort of net art and and um and here really I think going on from people like Zach Blass and the Trevor Paglin piece this this really is where uh the internet as subject and object of the work becomes um you know really kind of uh, in depth, in terms of its its interrogation of what that means and what you can do online as an artist, and and it's a collection of works, um, some you know, kind of historic and and from the nineties, uh, where where the you know this, this technology is first being used as medium, I suppose, by by artists from that period, and um, and you can go online there and actually yeah, it's all reasonably participate in these yeah. things. Some of them can't you exactly. I mean, it's probably not the best looking sort of work to put in a gallery. But it's, no, that was interesting, wasn't it? The most it's just, sort of, some of them are old computers, some of them are new, yeah. some, some of them you, you don't really know where you're supposed to go on yeah. the computer. Or... And it looks sort of strangely educational or, or science museum-y. You know, it yeah. looks like you, do, you know, but, um I did like the one at the end, which was actually not a computer. I think it wasn't. Anyway, it was uh, someone who tried to sell their blackness on eBay. I thought that was great. Yeah, 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 yeah. I so, know. well, I th you know, this is this is what um, this is what is is doable when art 
only inhabits. It was all in the description space. of what yeah. what would yeah. what you could use the blackness for and how it was useful. Yeah. <laughs> like if you yeah. had it, yeah. so if a white person bought it, it would enable you yeah. to be to do all these things. They were just so funny. Yeah, um, I wish I knew who the Pam <laughs> artist was. Can you remember who the artist? I can't was? remember. Um, I should know. But there was uh, one of the works that I thought was very sort of. Um, powerful in terms of its interrogation of what the internet is, is was uh, the Taryn Simon piece from I think it's 2014 but um, you know it, it kind of it set up this interactive possibility where you could you could run your regular searches over various platforms in different countries and and you, you kind of you, you you get a sense of um, something that's seemingly as simple as searching through Google uh, is actually bound and determined by a all sorts of cultural and political and factors. And it sort of shows and you how that actually yeah, is, yeah. the reality of that, which exactly. you don't often get, do you, because no. you are where you are. No, so I think it, it kind of exposes something about the fundamental nature of how the internet is operated and, and who, you know, has those sort of powers, you know. Um, so I, I think that, that that room in particular is quite It was the least arty room, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, but, but spoke most kind of critically of the internet as subject, which is what I kind of gathered the show was supposed to do. In a yeah, way. yeah. Um, Okay, so yeah. that room gets a tick. Yeah, I think so. And the next, then you go into another <laughs> yeah. bigger room, don't you? Which is so we're going back in time again. Yeah. So, and, and I mean, something that's quite interesting, sort of allegorically, I suppose, is that the, the further back you go, the more spacious the displays become, because yeah. probably there's less work, right? Um, I don't know. I sometimes wonder whether it's actually because some of the artists are dead, or yeah. they've got big <laughs> galleries, and they all these works come with caveats. You know, must be displayed. This monitor, this space. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah, it, it could be it some could of them be anyway. I mean, I I sort of gave the curatorial premise the benefit of the doubt and thought it was this nice sort of visual metaphor of the, you know, the visual noise of the internet. Oh, so it's just quieting down a bit. Quieting down, maybe. Okay, no, um, no, give it. I give it. But, give uh, it. Them, you're right. You know, I but you know, I thought that was quite interesting. But but at the same time, when you you start at the beginning and work up to this point that we're now talking about, the the show sort of felt like a, a very convincing sort of narrative about this dialectical entanglement with technology and art um, and it wasn't quite suggested that that was specific to the internet although a lot of the literature and press release does say that um, whereas this sort of felt like a um, a very kind of um, you know generous inquiry into how technological thinking influenced art practice that which then ultimately led to this born digital room which was the internet and then downstairs is very much the central tenet of this whole thing is the internet but um yeah, so you, you've got all you know kinds of things that aren't explicitly to do with the internet, but certainly to do because with... the superhighway means the internet, doesn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. Really? I Is guess that it right? Was, it was coined by um, Namjoon Paik, and yeah, who has work in the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and and actually, uh, you know, that's that's named after one of uh, his artworks. But the the work in the show um, was was kind of, I suppose, these sort of hypothetical. Um, musings on what a future might look like you know a lot of these works are from the 1960s 70s um and and kind of starting to realize that there may be this sort of networked possibility of thinking of technology yeah. maybe out of television rather than i really liked alan caprow for that reason yeah who's a fantastic guy who did the happenings in america but he had this thing didn't he with it was called hello yeah and it was using a tv station's ability to link up by probably by cable i imagine that's right yeah to different yeah. sites yeah. is that right i think there's um one yeah, they were kind of globally at the time, weren't they? Kind of using sort of satellite communication and and so so these offers the offer these really sort of um, tentative forays into this idea of a networked society or this kind yeah. of uh, and he just got people to say hello back yeah to yeah him. yeah That's, and they yeah. were just in a bank of things and he'd say I can see you and someone would go 
and he, we didn't know where they were or something. Yeah. He kept looking at all the different monitors and then waving and something. And all they said was "hello back." That's all they yeah. use it for. <laughs> it was really <laughs> weird. Yeah, I mean, but then it was know, very funny. Actually. Yeah, very good. And I think that that sort of again sort of illustrates uh, the thinking behind what these things might be able to do as objects and subjects of their own making rather than sort of anything else. So they're quite self-referential or reflexive and this is mirrored in the net art that comes later and then right. and then it expands into a slightly more kind of convoluted or, or sort of three, four, five-pronged kind of attack about what the internet might be or do now, um, which gets a bit muddled and confused, although full of very, very good work like Ryan Tricartan and... And, and, and people we've talked about, yeah. We, we haven't really talked about it. We should describe quickly, but we're running, mm. we, again, we're running a bit out of time. Can you just do us a quick one on Faroon's... Oh, what, yeah. What, what um, actually you see? Because, I mean, okay. I, I, I could do it, but I think you'd probably do it better. Well, I think... I mean, it, I, was, I was really relieved to see this because I think as you kind of... When you, when you set up, like, a grand curatorial narrative that was done at the Whitechapel and you say, this is where we are, this is where we end, you, you expect to see this kind of... Um, you know, origin or this this big bang moment of the, you know when artists start doing this thing, and you and you leave feeling disappointed because the contemporary wasn't addressed, uh, you know, quite as well as it might have been, and and the origin is a little bit confused and not sure of itself. So you leave, and then suddenly you encounter this thing that's not technically in the show, but it's this big Harin Farocchi uh, Farocchi installation. It's a whole big room. Yeah, I mean they really did give him a lot yeah. of space, didn't and, it, they? and it, it's 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 fantastic because it, it kind of closes that loop. It's not necessarily suggesting where it is in this timeline. It's just kind of offering. Um, you know, a way of thinking about the human relationship to technology. It's to the side, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and there's and there's a couple of things that I think really resonated with um, what Catherine was saying, and it, it, it there's a moment where um, it's looking at the the, the the evolution of computer graphics within computer games, essentially, and um, there's a bit where we're watching this sort of tree, this willow uh, tree, sort of blowing in the wind, and and this sort of very sort of seductive voice is telling you that. Um, you know, the, the the larger leaves blow in a different way to the smaller leaves. The bar larger branches move differently to the smaller ones. Um, and then we're told that, sorry, I'm going to have to find it to uh, quote this properly, but um, we are told that, uh, you know, when re reality will soon cease to be the standard by which to judge the imperfect image, uh, instead the virtual image will become the standard by which to measure the imperfections of reality. And that um, when the wind blows in a computer game, it's not a appropriate uh, approximation of nature. It's a new constructivism. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. So this is this is read over to you. Yeah, while you, you're you listening under little speakers and you're watching the video, that's in, what's said. Yeah, yes. No, it was and powerful. I th and I think that suddenly sort of um, talks really eloquently about our human relationship to technology. It's like this isn't an approximation. This is just another reality. This is um, yeah. When the wind blows in the computer game, it's the wind blowing. I, the I just loved game. it when they said when another one they said uh, this is the surface of the sea. And then it moves down underneath something, and it says, yeah. "And there is nothing under the surface." Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then this is the cliffs, and there's nothing behind yeah. the cliffs, and it moves back, and there is nothing because and in a computer game there isn't, totally, is there? Yeah, well, yeah. And and you kind of you know you watch these sort of digital avatars sort of running beyond their <laughs> worlds, and they just drop into black and yeah, and, and fall. You know, I love that. It was it's, really a, good. it's a little bit like the hoardings yeah. outside of these buildings that are supposedly going to. Uh, spring up and change everyone's lives. Okay, we're going to give Jamie a go now. Let's <laughs> give Jamie a go. Um, he's been very patient and is now going to uh, baffle us with his knowledge of the Thulacine. No, you did a piece called Art and the Thulacine. <laughs> Thulacine. I'll tell you what I'm going to ask you first of all. If you Do, do you know actually the origin of... Uh, I did actually look it up, but I can't see the bit of paper now. The, what's the origin of scene? Because there's a lot of words in this piece which use... Um, 
that the end of them is seen. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the... the Plasticine, I, think, I thought, was good. To, to, to begin with, um, the, the, the kind of unpronounceable element of the word is, is sort of in, important, really. It's, like, integral to its Okay, to you its tell us that bum first. Um, so, basically, like, in its unpronounceability, it, you know, it suggests something that's kind of... Um, uh, a, a sort of difficulty that you have to stick with, that you have to, you know. Kind okay, because it definitely with. is, isn't it? Um, but we can we can kind of move on to that. But what, what I wanted to talk about initially was just um, the term that precedes this, which is the the Anthropocene. And the reason I wanted to write the article was because a few months back, um, Bob Dickinson did a really good piece for Art Monthly um, called Art in the Anthropocene, which was an attempt to map um, recent innovations in art that dealt with climate change and felt this kind of responsibility to environmental change. Um, but the Anthropocene as a concept is really troublesome, and it is for lots of reasons. And it was, I guess, pitched initially by Paul Crutzen, who was a, a chemist, and Eugene Stomer. And the idea was that they wanted to find a word that would adequately describe the age that we live in, which is an age in which um, human impact on the environment is being registered geologically. So we see carbon deposits in the kind of mineral strata of the earth. Um, there's an acidic increase in the ocean. Also, like a kind of plastic content of the ocean is, you know, increasing. Um, so they wanted to name this new moment adequately and I guess generate a discussion around that. And part of the implication of that is that the human the, the human race needs to take responsibility for the impact it's making on the environment. Um, my problem with that is that the human race is a, a kind of fiction in a sense. Like it needs to be differentiated. It needs to take into account all of the overlapping differences that occur between people. And climate change itself isn't distributed evenly. It's something that you know, is propagated by industrial capitalism in the West. And the kind of knock-on effects of that are felt most sort of viscerally by people um, in remote locations. So I guess, like, the, the, the kind of purpose of this article for me was really to just talk about ways in which the Anthropocene as a term, which is now, like, ubiquitous in, you know, Guardian articles and sort of the curatorial remits of different museums, um, needs to be kind of complicated and complexified and take into account all of these different kind of interlinking relationships between peoples, creatures, um, environments and habitats. I mean, to be crude, is it, is it saying, are you saying that, or are people saying that the Anthropocene is unfair in that pe some people are blameless and, other, and, some, and creatures are blameless? I mean, I, I know there's only one aspect of it, but there's an element in your piece where you talk about, you know, not everybody causes global warming or... Yeah, it's, it's, am I anywhere near a tiny point of what you're... I was saying it's quite similar to what I was talking about in terms of London being seen as this myth of a... A whole entity yeah and mm. there being no disparity and jamie says um here like it, it believes the assumption that we're all guilty mm. and it's yeah, that's what i was trying to refer to yeah um it's it's the idea that yeah every, everyone is culpable when when they're not and there's no disparity that's been accounted for and it's the same with the myth Mm. Of, of London as a city. And the Anthropocene brings it all into one... Yeah, like, yeah. we've all got to do something. It's, it's totally comparable to the idea of the big society that, mm. you know, um, asks the, the, the poor and the disenfranchised to uh, participate in rectifying problems that were created by the structural abuse of the financial system. You know, so it's kind of calling upon everyone as this united fictional entity to... We've all got to bear austerity. Themselves. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's this really amazing paper written by Zoe Todd, who's um, 
a Metis artist and anthropologist called Indigenizing the Anthropocene. It's really worth checking out and you can find it online. She talks about the, the ways in which the Anthropocene has been propagated by this sort of Western academic institutional apparatus, um, but it fails to take into account the voices of indigenous peoples and the kind of knowledge practices that they create and the uh, ways that they exist within certain environments um, and how those might be useful to a discussion of how we can address the situation that we're in at I mean, the moment. You mean like, just as a crude example, the ab well, they're not crude at all, the Aboriginal people in Australia, say, mm, mm. may have many things to offer us that we're not really listening to enough. Yeah, 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 totally. That, that's a perfect example. I mean, the the whole kind of notion of... Um, you know, time in, in European modernity is one of looking forwards into the future and kind of progressing in this sort of like phallic linearity that we're kind of exploding from the abysses <laughs> of, deep, of deep time. Well, like the, the kind of genderedness of it is really important. No, it in is, a way. Yeah. It's about like masculine pride and like hubristic um, kind of uh, aspiration. But um, yeah, I think like the, the, the Aboriginal people look kind of backwards uh, upon, you know, this um, series of unfolding kind of changes that they've made in their communities. But the thing with Zoe Todd's article um, and, and the thing that I, I mean, I don't really do it justice because it's an incredible piece of writing and I use it very kind of cursorily to just suggest that we need to think about all of these different elements. But the main thing that kind of played into me writing the piece was um, just seeing three really good bits of art over the course of the last year um, and thinking about um, if the Anthropocene is this kind of platitude, like this kind of platitudinous kind of concept that, that's sort of, you know, emblematic in this, this image of the kind of thin crust that we've created around the world, which is like, this, you know, carbon deposit that's sort of omnipresent. Um, how do we kind of dig through that crust and kind of look at the sort of weird interrelationships and processes that are going on within it? So there's these three bits of work, like by Rachel Pym, um, Joey Holder, and Mark Peter Wright, um, that just sort of allow us to think about things on a kind of subterranean, like a subaquatic and a subconscious level. So the idea was just to kind of like dig down into this kind of idea of the Anthropocene and sort of create some problems. And one of the thinkers that's really kind of important to this is Donna Haraway, who's um, an amazing writer on technology and feminism and biology. And she's uh, presented this term, the Cthulhu scene. And the etymology is a bit kind of crazy, but um, the main reference point, I guess, for people listening would be the science fiction and kind of horror author H.P. Lovecraft that had this um, fantastical entity, Cthulhu, who was a sort of octopus-headed god. And the purpose of Cthulhu for Lovecraft was that um, it was a kind of... Uh, a figure through which man could be decentered, or like the pride of man could be decentered. And Cthulhu is so massive and vast and horrific that when man confronts him, his brain just, you know, becomes mush, like he's kind of shattered. Um, so Donna Haraway takes a couple of things from that. Like on the one hand, she takes the tentacular notion of the interconnectivity of all things and that we have a responsibility to the beings that we share our world with and she also, also takes this idea of like the problem of thinking and the fact that there's a trouble that we need to stick with um so it just seemed like quite a nice term to kind of bring into this uh discussion of contemporary artists who are dealing with all these different interspecies relationships and well why, why don't you tell us about the the, the worms yeah t t yeah so um, as, an, as an example of that because it's 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 you know it's a pretty good i listened to some of it on the internet on the Chisholm Hill website, I, I think, think it was. Yes, available. you can. Yeah, you can. Yeah, so th this is a, a performance that was um, 
done last summer by Rachel Pym, who's an artist, and Laurie E. Allen, who's a sound designer and sound artist. And it was at the Chisholm Hale, they have a kind of project space next to the main gallery. That's Chisholm Hale Gallery, London, East London, guys. Yeah, that's, that's the one. And um, this performance is called Worming Out of Shit. And it's basically just a, a room filled with um, leftover foam from the brutalist playground that I think Assemble had been commissioned to produce for uh, Reba earlier in the summer. Probably non-biodegradable, by the way. Yeah, well, this is this is kind of part of the, the, the point. Um, so you're kind of sat in this room on all of these weird mats that are kind of degrading because they've had children, you know, running all over them. And you yourself feel compelled to break them apart and sort of, you know, degrade them yourself. And it was really simple in its in its kind of composition. It was just uh, Rachel Pym reading a text that she'd written and Laurie Allen uh, manipulating her voice as she kind of worked through some of these ideas. Um, but the whole point of the piece, I think, uh, the whole kind of agenda was really to kind of inhabit this um, non-human identity of the worm and to take the listeners and everyone present into this sort of speculative mode of um, engagement with the earth where... You know, your your body is this kind of porous interface. You know, you, you just, eat the earth, don't you? If you're a worm, yeah, yeah, to- totally. Yeah, and other things. I mean, whatever Earth is, what the worm eats, mm. maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the you know the worms are responsible for creating like um, a habitable environment for humans to live in because they're you know the producers of soil. They kind of digest um, rocks and minerals and create arable land that we can plant in. Um, but the amazing thing about this is just how like humbling it was to to listen to and to be led through. these different processes Um, and it really had the feel of something kind of bardic or you know it's like a kind of storytelling practice that everyone sat together I think there was a single light bulb lighting the space so there's this real kind of focus on the intensity of the story Um, and there are moments where which is like going back isn't it in a way yeah oh yeah 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 well I I guess yeah kind of connection with um, I don't know how Rachel Pym would feel about that sort of, you know, going back because I think she's very keyed into. I don't mean that in the least bit negatively. I mean, it, as yeah, you were saying. It's, it's de- definitely not, not a kind of like fetishization of primitivism at all. But, no, no, no. I wasn't um, saying it was because obviously there's a lot of technology used in the sound yeah, yeah, recording. Yeah. If you listen, I mean, I, well, it seemed to be. Yeah, yeah, no, t- totally, yeah. And I mean, there, there are moments where, you know, she um, evokes this kind of tangled mass of, of worm bodies and. Um, her voice is sort of amplified and made multiple and all of a sudden you get this kind of sonic imprint of, you know, multiple identities sort of swarming you. Um, but yeah, just it had like a real a real effect on me. And uh, along with this other work by Joey Holder and Mark Peter Wright, who were uh, artists working, I guess, with sort of these speculative subjectivities of, you know, what what is the human in relation to the non-human? What's, you know, what is the human in relation to the animal or the insect or... Um, the, the, the natural, as we you know, sort of weirdly conceive it. As I'm going to cut in just there because I think that, that some some listeners will be just thinking, what does it mean? I mean, I'm a human being. I'm not mm, the same mm. as a worm. Yeah, or, yeah. I mean, so what do we actually? Because I think it is really interesting. This this one relying on the other is one mm, way of seeing mm. it. I think you yeah, know, yeah. in that you said about the worms creating the soil, which we can grow stuff in because mm, they do mm. do that. They break it down and 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 it. But but people don't think. That, you know, then we eat the food, but we don't, yeah, people don't yeah. think like that. They think we are separate, don't well, they? Do, so it's ha- all about trying to change people's approach to, to how they feel, almost, isn't it? To- totally. I, th- I think it's about basically asking the question: what, what happens when you sort of slightly decenter, you know, man, 
which is the, you know the wrong term to use, but um, the human from um, the centre of the universe, essentially. What, what's happening when you kind of shift the sands beneath uh, beneath us, and what kind of responsibilities do we feel as a result, and what kind of precarities do we feel as a result, and most importantly, what kind of obligations do we feel as a result to other species? And Donna Haraway has it um, just puts it really well in a, a book that she wrote in two thousand and eight called uh, When Species Meet. And she just talks about how wonderful it is for her to recognise that the, what we know is like the human genome, the thing that sort of in a you know, molecular um, and biological sense defines us as human, is only present within 10% of the, the cells in our bodies. And the, the, the other 90% is um, you know, composed of bacteria and parasitical entities that all find a home within us, but we don't really acknowledge because we're too sort of closed off in terms of our thinking. Um, there was a, a weird thing where you were talked about, um, which was a, a, a was it something like death mushroom suit or something? Oh yeah, that's that's a really it's now which, been... I, which connects with what you just said to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's literally you get buried in this suit, and because you're wearing this thing, and it comes got mushrooms, spores, and things in it, you will not your toxins won't disperse into the soil. Is that right? Yeah. So that this is a work by uh, J. Wim Lee, who's um, a Korean artist. And she created this work, I think it was MIT, I think she was based at initially, um, but she created this work which is basically um, a kind of death shroud that you wear. And the, the human body is naturally... When you're dead? When, well, you wear it when you're dead, yeah, yeah. You could wear it when you're alive if you want to, but <laughs> um, maybe some adverse effects. Um, but basically, the human body is sort of toxic when it's, when it's buried, so it creates a lot of toxins and pollutants. So she uh, was working with mushrooms and mycelial spores, and she realised that mushrooms can kind of feed on decaying human matter and process the toxins and make them safe for the environment. So she uh, had this this work. It's now being rebranded. It's called the Infinity Burial Suit. Oh, really? It sounds kind of like less crass. Um, I and, and I guess more more sort of acceptable to people. Sounds like she's marketing it, it to me. Well, no, it's been, that's the thing. It's been paid. <laughs> but that's good, things. isn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because if it totally. if it does what it says, on the, it's like you know, my dad cardboard coffin. Mm. Next time, maybe I'll be wearing a mushroom suit. You know? <laughs> it's a changing way of feeling about how you're going to die and where you're going to go, isn't it? Though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, because I mean, obviously parasitic. I mean, mushrooms and spores and all these things. So I didn't know before that, say, an oak tree mm. relies entirely for its existence on the fact that there are mushrooms and spores and fung funguses, basically, mm, in the mm. soil, which they have a very symbiotic relationship with each yeah, other. And they're yeah. crit it's critical. Yeah. I mean, it, it's all under hidden away. It's not like the worms hidden away, but it's all there and very important. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, like, symbiosis is the, the sort of the central point of this um, argument, really. Like, if we, if, we, if we take the Cthulhu scene, and it's not, you know, it's not announcing, like, a new movement. The, the Cthulhu scene is basically just an attempt to... Um, present problems. It's to, to draw present... attention, isn't it, in a way? It's a word yeah, of and, saying this is a... And, and interconnections as well, basically, to create, to create discussions. She does um, talk about kin. Donna Haraway, Haraway talks about kin. Mm, what, did mm. say, what did she say about that? You didn't well, talk she, about that, did you? Uh, kin, basically, it's about accepting the, um, the kind of creatures with which we share a life. Essentially, so she wrote this book in 2003 called The Species Companion Manifesto, which is all about her relationship with her dog. And there's this amazing image at the start of it where she talks about the dog licking her hand. I think we're going back to the internet now. There's, there's some sweet cats coming on, <laughs> aren't there? <laughs> 
sorry. So there's this. She describes this kind of symbiotic transference of DNA when the dog licks her hand, like the the DNA of the dog kind of passes into her body and she assimilates it. And there's all sorts of weird processes going on that she can't account for, but are being registered, you know, at some point. And so the question is, what happens to her identity on this kind of on this other level, oh, this molecular level? I didn't because I, I thought she was talking about at one point about population problems in the world and saying something about how you know kin friends can be as valuable as blood relatives and but population but that, that was only part of it i see now yeah yeah well that's yeah that's in that's in the essay specifically on the thulu scene yes um, that she wrote um and there are a few different versions of that which are really worth checking out but i guess she mm. you know she doesn't have any problem with the term anthrop well she has lots of problems with the term anthropocene i think what she wants to do is just complexify it you know um and i think she believes that we're living in a time of crisis and there are lots of things we need to address and one of the ways we can do that is to think deeply about the spaces that we share and the kind of thresholds that we might you know not um recognize we're kind of crossing when we kind of cohabit the universe with different you know entities and to get um, and just for the artist's sake in a sense they, are these artists think they're coming up better as as working ways of being an artist you know, Bob Bob was saying, Bob Dickinson was saying in his piece, you know, it doesn't necessarily have any effect what mm. these artists are doing. But do we think maybe that the artists you found within this uh, this feature, perhaps they are? Yeah, I mean, the, the way that I the way that I think about it is the, um, you know, e eco art itself is is kind of defined by like its locality, maybe, and the example it can set in a certain domain. If you take someone like Joey Holder, who's an artist who works with. Um, a series of websites that she maintains, which are these kind of scrolling image boards. You know, they're kind of reminiscent of like trend predicting yeah, mood, I looked at mood one of boards, those, yeah. and they're, they're amazing. Forever, like they're 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 just fantastic. And I think, you know, she's creating this visual language which is truly decentering. You know, it kind of um, it's, it uses all sorts of processes of like abjection and horror and also like cutesification um, to just draw out all of these questions. Um, so yeah, I think she's she's kind of doing something different because it's web based and it's you know it's image based. It's not kind of eco art, but it's doing something that's creating a language which makes us question these processes. So there's some optimism in these artist activities. I just want to try an optimistic yeah. note because <laughs> it sounds to me like they are. We're going to wind up the show now. We have um, done almost an hour, which is great. And thank all my guests who I didn't say what all of you do. I'm sorry. Um, I know that you're writers, obviously, because you've written, but. Um, what what do you do as well, Linton? What do you do? Is you write and you're uh, uh, yeah. I, I I work collaboratively with Hannah Nurali with curators. Okay, so together. curator yeah. as well, Jamie. Yeah, I, I'm a writer, artist, and publisher. Um, I'm doing a performance actually at Vestry House this Friday with Ash Reed and Jennifer Payne. You got it in. You got it in, Catherine. What? <laughs> I'm an artist as well. Lovely, yeah. great. Well, thank you all very much indeed. Thank you, listeners. Goodbye. <laughs>